Welcome to the My Risk Advisor podcast. This podcast is for the Australian financial planning ecosystem and we focus heavily on life risk insurance. So whether you've been around for many, many years or you're just starting out, I think you'll get heaps of value out of this podcast. I'm your host, Phil Thompson, and I am a life risk insurance specialist, so I geek out on insurance all day, every day. On today's episode, I have a chat with William John, who is a leading expert in claims management at ClaimRight. And we have a chat about a whole bunch of things. Now, there is a lot of different subjects we jump into, but the core of the conversation is about claims and how to manage claims and how to you know, protect yourself from the risk of getting involved in clients' claims. Um, but before we begin, I just want to shout out Zurich and OnePath as the sponsors of the My Risk Advisor podcast. Now, we can't do this without um, some great supporters um, within Zurich and OnePath. Now, I start this conversation with asking William, what does claim right do? Now, let's get into the episode. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, William. Um, so, first of all, what does claim right do? Um, it's a claims handling and settlement service uh, that handles a whole lot of uh, claims uh, direct from uh, you know from the market so we have a lot of people um, using us directly from you know Facebook advertisements etc um, and we also have a lot of uh, not-for-profits that use us like you know um, whole disease groups MS etc um, yeah. and recently advisors have in the last 12 months have started to pick up the, its use as well and believe it or not lawyers too when it's a non-commercial claim for them that they want to help the client out and they know that they can't charge what sometimes um, they need to charge um, they say okay well we know of a group that will do it for much less yeah and why did you why did you set it up uh, at the time we were getting uh, you know as uh, as some of the listeners may know, I um, I specialize in neurological disorders. And so um, uh, we get, on the financial planning side, we used to get a lot of people with significant neurological impairments. And so they tend to be working and they're thinking about how to exit the workforce. I wanted to um, create something that supported them with the transition from the, uh, you know, being employed to um, essentially unemployment due to illness. And uh, sometimes they would come after seeing, you know, after having gone through the process with a lawyer and I would see that, you know, um, there were issues around how much they paid, but not the fees especially, like it was more about the, the way that it's been handled, like the exit from superannuation system, taxation yeah. issues, um, sometimes family tax benefit issues, etc. And I thought to myself, we have to create something that we can control so that we handle, we, you know, we, it's a service that's aware, not, not simply an administration or a, um, a, you know, like a machine that churns out claims. It's about being aware that each claim has its own um, issues around what happens after the claim is successful. So yeah. I wanted to create something that I could control um, and also maybe disrupt the legal sector um, so they could do better. 
that's how it started out. And then, um, you know, it was how do we introduce evidence-based measures of impairment into the process that basically reduce the cost of a claim because um, a lot of lawyers, etc., they would use third-party uh, service providers like medical providers for expert witness reports because yeah. a lot of the time um, that's the fastest way to get a claim through. Um, you know, so they would have... Uh, they would use e-reports or some other companies. They would then outsource that medical expert witness stuff to, um, you know, to to a retired specialist who now does medical legal work. And they would basically say, "All right, here is the policy. Here is what the policy wants to read. Do you agree, based on the evidence that we've supplied you, do you agree or disagree?" That's a very expensive process. That's you know, two, three, two, usually at least two thousand dollars, but more like four thousand dollars per report yeah. and the client generally needs to report so that's eight thousand dollars gone while if they use their own medical practitioners it would be very cheap but then the problem was is that the medical practitioner would take forever they wouldn't be impairment specialists so they would be and i say impairment in terms of the body function like what we call uh, the specialists in the medical field in this area are they called they're called um, occupational physicians yeah. or Sometimes they're referred to as OCFIs. And they specialize in measuring the body's ability uh, to undertake the work that you have been trained to do by education, training, or experience. So they would reflect yeah. on that, right? So it would be very precise. Now, a, a GP is not trained in that. And so sometimes what you'd see is poorer reports. And so I thought to myself, well, can we design a system that would measure the body's own function uh, the body's functionality and then reflect on the contractual obligations of what the, what it needs to say and then essentially give that report to the gp the gp will look at it and if it looks good enough they will um, endorse it yeah. yeah so that's basically to try to create efficiencies and all that sort of stuff so that took me on the tangent to start looking at um how to measure body impairments and so on in a, yeah. an efficient way and so what are some of the key learnings? So you basically built a, a, a entire claims process from scratch. Yeah. What are some of the key learnings that you, you took out from that building out that whole process? Well, there are the first thing is is that you've got to you know if I reflected on what the process looks like in a high level, it looks like this. Obviously there's a contract. So you've got to know the contract inside and out. Um, and I say, you know, the contract inside and out, it doesn't mean like every single letter of the contract, but you have to know where to look. Um, that's going to be uh, relevant to the claim. Um, the second thing is, is that you've got to go deep in the employment history and understanding the person's ability or, or, or capability of, of undertaking their job. Um, sometimes employment can be very sketchy, especially if you start dealing with people with complex mental conditions, etc., where there could be many, many reasons why somebody leaves work, but it's usually not as straightforward as, for example, being diagnosed with a neurological disorder. It could be personality conflicts, etc. So employment becomes very, very important to the, in the process. So that's the second leg. I call them the four legs of a claim. Contract, employment, impairment, and evidence. Yeah. Impairment is about... Uh, you know, how does somebody write 
how does somebody's body function rate against uh, known uh, matrices? And then the last one is evidence. And evidence is about can you show the insurer that the person has lost um, their income or their job solely due to illness. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess, yeah, touching on the next question, if, if advisors were looking at building out a claims process, do you feel like it's reasonable to follow those kind of those four steps in terms of like they're the major key areas? I think we naturally follow them anyway because, you know, if you look at, for example, what the insurer wants to see in, in, and they will be like coming back to you and saying, hey, you're missing this out and you're missing that out. What they're looking for is, um, you know, employment history, pay slips, you know, when did the person start? They're looking at a CV, etc. Um, when it comes to impairment, has do you have evidence that the person is impaired? Did they solely due to leave work because of that impairment? And then did you get the two medical sign-offs um, from the doctors? So essentially, from an advisor's point of view, if they are dealing with this on an ad hoc level, I think the claims process that the insurers have put together is essentially um, an okay process to go through. And that's why I think a lot of people say to me, well, I haven't had a problem. And I'm, that's a good thing. You know, that's by design. They haven't had a problem. So I don't think they need to like build out or uh, like a complete process from scratch. A lot of that is inbuilt already within the current um, framework that the insurer deploys. The issues come down to... Um, like from an advisor's point of view, and this is this certainly is impacting um, claim right a lot, in that prior to 1st of April 2021, insurance claims handling was not in financial service. So you couldn't be, um, you know, basically punished for somebody else's mistakes in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, say, for example... You know, if you're looking at a AFSL regime, you're looking at, you know, you have to act efficiently, honestly, fairly, etc. Otherwise, you're basically in breach of the Corporations Act. Yeah. Um, if a doctor doesn't respond back and the client says, look, you're at fault because you didn't follow up the doctor. And you say, no, I, I followed up the doctor, but they've lodged a complaint with AFCA because the claim has now taken four months. Yeah. Then that investigation is going to be 15, 20 grand. To, just so that you clear your name. And that's the issue I have to grapple with at claim right now because now a, a claims handling is an AFSL activity. That's right. It, and I guess, you know, coming back to building out a process, that's why I kind of think it's really important for advisors to think about having that robust process for, for that claims management. Um, and, I mean, I think it's... I think every advice business should be building out robust processes for, for almost everything that they're doing. Um, and but but claims is kind of this interesting space that we work in, whereby the percentage of time that we spend working with clients is not is you know, changing direct debit details. Like I'll change a million direct debit details before I do deal with a claim. Um, and depending on the yeah. maturity of the business, but that's where kind of that that promise that we make to clients yeah. is you know, fulfilled is in that claim. And so I guess my question is like um, building out that process, what are kind of those key areas that, um, and, and I guess you kind of touched on one of them is, is making sure we do have a robust way of following up. 
um, that claims and always touching base with the people we need to. Is that kind of, in terms of mitigating risk, is that kind of one of the big areas? I think so. I think um, I think one of the, you know, if we were going to have a complaint on our books, it would mainly be around communication. You didn't give me an update. You didn't tell me what was going on. And so if you're building a, a scalable business, then of course something some things are going to be missed, like mm. you know updating a client every week on the claim. Maybe you update them every fortnight, and then they will be cranky because you you might have said to them, "Look, I'll update you weekly or whatever." Yeah, yeah. So um, th- these are issues that come up at um, you know when you're when you're handling you know hundreds of claims, which is like what we're doing now. Ninety nine percent of people are going to be happy. One percent mm. are not going to be happy, no matter what you do. Yeah. But the problem is that now it's a regulated environment, and we have you know um, mandatory claim, you know, complaints reporting and all that sort mm. of stuff. Now, some people say to me, "Yeah, but advisors are exempt from all of that." Remember, you know, like claims handling that, that that's exempt. No, we, we're not exempt. It just means that we've already we are already regulated. Let's not do a double. Yeah, do yeah. double regulations. We're already, we're already within that. Framework. We are already within that framework, and so um, it means that the normal compliance processes apply to claims handling, mm. um, and that's a bit of a problem because it means that if you're going to specialize in this area, you're going to have to have not just robust processes, but robust compliance handling processes as well. To keep yeah. you safe. So I guess one of the important things about claims handling, and as you touched on, it is increased risk for advisors. Like, how do we price um, that claims handling? So first of all, how do you guys price your claims handling? Before we used to have um, a very set low fee to say, look, um, you know, if it's a claim under a hundred thousand dollars, we'll charge four thousand nine hundred dollars for it. If it's a claim over a hundred thousand dollars, then we will have like a tiered approach to it. The first two fifty is six thousand nine hundred, and then it increases by twenty five percent. That six thousand nine hundred yeah. gets loaded by twenty five percent for every hundred, or yeah. um, uh, or every two fifty rather, and so on. So you end up with a claim that's a million dollars that you might be making ten or eleven grand on. Yeah. Um, so that's how we did it before, but now the introduction of the um, the regulatory environment where it's now a regulated product, I had to pull it back and say, actually, we have to adjust for the risk that a single complaint could not just wipe out this this entire um, margin, but it could actually wipe out the business. Mm. And uh, how do we do that? So now what we're doing is basically we're quoting based on um, each individual contract. We look at the contract, we look at who wrote the contract, if it's a retail or a group contract, and uh, we investigate the history of the contract and the history of the employment, then I issue them with a fixed fee. Uh, that is still much less than what a lawyer would charge. Um, Do you start- charge a fee for that initial research? I have abstained from it for the time being, simply yeah. because... A lot of the people that we get are really on the verge of, um, you know, financial ruin themselves. So mm-hmm. sometimes we just want to help the community out as much as possible. So I, I see it as a do good, you know, a social service, if you like. 
Yeah. Um, it costs, and I mean, put your business hat on. It is a loss leader. To, it's a to loss leader, of course, and it costs about $1,500 at least yeah. uh, per client. But look, I mean, you know, if it, if it means that the client gets the right information, if it means that we also avoid problems or getting into mm. contract or business that we don't want, then it's something that we have to accept as part of business. Plus, our competition, like law, legal firms and all that sort of stuff, they do the same thing. So um, we can't price ourselves out of that. Now, unless they want, unless it's an advisor, for example, who wants a consultancy. And then yep. we say, all right, well, you know the claim really well, all that, you might want to run it yourself, um, or you might want to hand it over, but you'd like us to consult to you initially, and so we'll just start a consultancy fee. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. And so I guess in terms of the, the listeners, the advisors uh, out there, like how should they, what, what's your recommendation on them setting up a pricing for that claims management? Um, well, just look at your pricing page and copy paste. Is that a good I mean, I mean, I mean, you've got, uh, um, uh, look, it's not an easy question because some people will obviously fumble through it if they haven't done it before. So mm. you don't want to charge per hour sometimes only because you might be going on a learning expedition that you're charging the client for. Yeah. Um, so have a transparent fee from the very beginning. You know, like tell the client, this is how, I'm gonna, how much I'm going to charge you. Ultimately, we're also caught by the FCA code. Uh, it means that you can't overcharge for a service. Yeah. However, the guidance from ASIC was a little bit peculiar in that, you know, they were talking about percentages being charged on claims. So, but I think that's more for claims handlers and settlers, not for advisors. So if you're an advisor, you're effectively caught by the FCA code. Um, So you have to be giving people value for money. You're going to have to demonstrate how you, what value you're adding exactly and all that sort of stuff. Um, You know, from if the client is going to engage with you and you're, you know, the claims from advisors tend to be larger. So they tend to be you know, covering the mortgage and plus, you know, whatever multiple of of lifetime earnings, etc. Yeah, um, the client may well be a very valuable client later on anyway for that advisor. So instead of being the you know a C client now, they're going to be an A client because they've got an extra million dollars to invest or whatever. So also, if the client is going to keep the money with you, then you might want to help out as much as possible with the claim. Yeah. Um, for that and, purpose. and there's a lot of hesitancy charging a claim given the ongoing commission um, of, of the policy where advisors have a hesitation charging that fee. I have a, I have a um, confession to make. I don't share the same view as everybody else on this. Um, n- not because that we shouldn't so, help. So flesh, flesh that out a bit more. What do you mean you don't share that view? You well, think we should always be charging a fee? I don't share the view that we get commissions for claims. I get. I, I share the view, uh, well, my view is, is that um, the insurer pays the distributor or the advisor to get phone calls from the client throughout the lifetime of them being the responsible entity so you're effectively the call center for the insurer you're getting all the requests you're assisting the client by downloading this form and filling out that form and sending it to the insurer that saves the insurer 11% 10% serviceability so they're simply saying look we don't have to hire staff we don't have to manage staff we're basically giving you that responsibility the responsibility is on you um, and it's also a shared responsibility situation. So they basically forego some of their earnings 
to give to you because you're effectively running part of their business for them. Um, I, I mean, I, I totally agree. I, every time new clients ask me about claims and will we, they be charged a fee, I say straight up, we're just reasonable. If we think yeah. the cost of that claim is going to take us a whole bunch of time, we'll charge you a fee. Uh, and we'll chat about it at that point in time or we'll get to a point where you say you can manage it on your own from this point forward or we'll charge you a fee to manage it. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think this is the issue where advisors don't see themselves as like a proper distribution channel for the insurer um, and that they're being compensated for all the ongoing servicing that's required mm-hmm. on that policy. Um, the question becomes, well, did you actually earn did, you, did, did anything arise during the uh, you being the advisor on the claim? And if you're yeah. also receiving, you know, if the premium is $50,000 and you're receiving five dollars $6,000 a year and you're not providing any type of service, then maybe you need to look down and it's a function of not can I, it's a, it's a should I. So, you know, yeah. can we, should we? So Exactly. And that, I mean, that's why I talk to clients about just being reasonable. Like if if there is that fifty grand and I haven't spoken to you for two years for whatever reason, mm. then we'll take on a lot of that claim. Exactly, um, and, and it's look, just a matter of managing that reasonableness test. But but that we're kind of moving into that you know commission discussion, which we'll leave for another day, I guess. I, I think I think we can, but uh, you know, from a claims point of view, is that it is a service. It is a it, it and you have to be competent at it. Like you can't just be okay. I'm gonna nice guy. I'm gonna try. You become an advocate in that case. If you're a yeah. if you're a um, a nice guy, you're an advocate. If you're a um, if you're a professional service provider who's providing, uh, you know, who's basically charging money for it, then you've got to demonstrate competence. And yeah. to me, it's that competence piece that that. Um, sometimes makes advisors feel uncomfortable because mm. they might have done one or two claims in their entire career. Yeah, that's right. And 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 I guess that's where it becomes difficult because we do have a, the fazier standard says we've got to be competent in the, the work we do. Right. And then you look at new advisors who I've got a new advisor in my, in my practice. It's like, well, where do you learn that competency without doing it? Competency means three years of professional practice in, in, a, in a specific area. So if you look deeper in the legislation, it talks about you know, what competence really means. It really does mean about three years worth of um, demonstrated uh, work in, in that particular practice area. Yeah, I mean, but then the FASIA code says that you can't give advice for three years then because we can't be acting on the client's behalf unless we are competent. These are all. So then we can't give advice for three years without well, giving you advice. Well, you've got the professional year. You've got you've yeah. you've got um, effectively a, a principle of a uh, a. Uh, you've got a, a responsible manager who's probably going to put you on probation for a long period of time until you can demonstrate that you're competent in a particular area. For example, mm-hmm. a lot of us advisors, when we started, we had to submit plans to the to be pre vetted, and. Um, slowly that change to you've got to submit like eight plans or 10 plans on SMSFs and you've got to submit another 10 on on superannuation rollovers and another 10 on that. So each licensee um, is basically looking at this and saying how can we allow advisors who are obviously competent because they are on the FAR, how can we make sure that we are satisfying our obligations as licensees? So I think if we look at it purely from a what does competence mean? 
you generally accept it as three years of, mm. of doing something repetitively, like you, you get competent at it. Mm. Um, having said that, like I said to you initially, um, insurers do, the insurers bear the most responsibility when it comes to ensuring that the claim is handled appropriately. So, yeah, yeah. so really the advisor here is the agent. They are not the claim settler or the claim handler. We're not making the call. I'm not. I'm not paying the claim. The insurer is. So, the, so therefore, the insurer has got to demonstrate um, demonstrate the uh, ability to uh, run the claims business. On the other hand, when I applied for the ASIC, we we got our AFSL, and I needed to demonstrate that I've got three years to to basically allow for ASIC to give me the the additional license for claims handling. I needed yeah. to demonstrate three years competence in claims handling. Yeah. And, and, and the processes and the robust procedures and the compliance procedures and everything that you can think of just on the claims handling. Yeah, yeah. Of three yeah, years fun. or more. I guess from my point of view, as so we're a risk specialist business. So um, we are setting up new policies every single day. Um, and from my point of view, with, with our claims process, we don't have a robust process. Um, we've managed, you know, I think two or three claims in the last 12 months. And I guess my process, well, my theory is I've got someone who's got a lot of claims experience managing that claims process. But when it becomes complex, we will escalate that to a third party. I guess my question is, like, how does an advisor determine when it becomes complex? I think you've got to assume that every claim is complex unless it's a... Um uh, in my view, here's my view. Here's my general view. First of all, I am not a big fan of getting claims from advisors. A lot of people think, oh, you're pitching to advisors. Actually, I think the claims that we get out of advisors are probably the mo- more complex claims. Like they get to the procedural fairness. Because the majority of advisors do a good job in getting the claims through. So the yeah. claims that don't get through have been they either really poorly handled in the first place, the client has got some issue with the contract, there is like a non-disclosure yeah. issue, um, or there or there are a point where the claim is being rejected because of whatever reason, and then it makes my life unenjoyable because remember, we're a, we, we pitch ourselves to be a low-cost, fast yeah, yeah. Um, service. And when we get claims from advisors, they tend to give us only the more complex things so they rip out all the all the fat and they give us the bones and, yeah, yeah. and, and it's like well I don't want to deal with this no no we, yeah. we, we hear that you're the best I'm like I, I don't want to deal with this yeah. <laughs> but so why is it that then um, why is it the question is then why is it that you need a claim specialist if, if a lot of the claims get um, get accepted and that's exactly what uh, the, in the same if you look at the APRA statistics um, 90% of claims get through okay, 10% don't. That's on the TPD side. Yeah. So why is that? Um, the first thing is is that you've got to look at um, the contract as a medico-legal contract and you've got to know what you're doing with that. If you're comfortable with the contract to say, okay, the person has got this illness, they stopped working, they've got two medical reports saying that they can't perform a job, all that sort of stuff, you're basically uh, working the the evidence side and cross-matching against it. If you have a problem with that or if you don't know how to do it, you've got to treat every every claim as a complex claim. Yeah. With the exception of trauma, 
and income protection because trauma and income protection, uh, well, and life. I mean, obviously. So really, the complex claim tend to be TPD. TPD, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think I think TPD is the more complex stuff. Income protection can be fairly straightforward. Or, or long-term income protection claims. Or long-term income protection claims. Um, but again, that kind of ties in with TPD. Yeah, I think so. I think I think long-term income protection claims can also be cl- like it depends on the policy. Some of those are called um, temporary incapacity benefits. So you've yeah. just got to be aware that um, some of these claims can be turned off if you're starting if it goes too long. If you're TPD. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, but yeah, I think advisors generally do a fantastic. Like honestly, I I mean that with all my heart. I think advisors do a tremendous job for their clients in the claim side. Um, without having to like go through deep learnings of what a lawyer would have to, for example, do. Yeah, but when we do a bad job, we do a real bad job. We do it really well. <laughs> do, you wanna, do you want me to give you examples of a bad job? Go for it. All right. Um, I've, I've said something on my risk advisor group and, and that tends to have generated some um, basically both love and People love hate. arguing. Um, uh, yeah, so let's see. So let's see what happened. Um, Josh Menon from Morris Blackburn um, simply put out a thing to say, "Look, we're going to be looking at advisors who um, misadvise. Essentially, they give the client, they recommend less than what the client needs." Yeah. And um, here is the methodology of how much a client needs. The problem here is that. You know, at the moment we have like a zero conflict code. Um, so, if the advisor is also advising, if the advisor who is who advised on the policy is also advising on the claim, that doesn't give the opportunity for the client to seek independent advice about whether the claim amount is actually sufficient or was sufficient. Yeah. So that's a little bit of an issue that the lawyers are looking to exploit. Um, the when I said that uh, online, I just basically showed what he said, and I said, "Look, just be careful because what's happening is that lawyers are going through their old claims and they are fishing to sue advisors uh, on that." So I was basically just letting people know that what that's what's happening. Um, of course, some people said, "Well, we're getting out of the claims, we're getting out of the insurance recommendations business, the insurance advice, and all that sort of stuff." And I said, "No, that's not." the right thing to do, you've just got to document your recommendation methodology. So when it comes to claims, what we do see is a discrepancy between um, what was recommended, what should have been recommended and what was recommended. And the fact that, yeah. the cli- for example, um, life events haven't been exercised for many years, although the, the client yeah. might have gotten married, bought a house, had a baby, got divorced, a whole bunch of stuff has happened and none of that has been like when we look at the history of the contract, the contract is as is, indexed per annum, that started off with $300,000 when somebody was 25 years old, and now they're in their 40s, gone through a claim, and they have $450,000, but they have debts of $800,000, $900,000 plus. So, the, yeah. so then that, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable in that you know it goes back to the commission's question uh, and also our duty. Um, well, that's right, but it, but I mean, you, you said before that really we're just a call center for the insurer. Uh, no. So a call center is not obliged to. I know you didn't say that. I'm, you, well, you you, you kind of did, but you didn't mean it that way. Um, 
but a call center is not meant to go and follow up clients. Five no, years I, I said, I said, what I, I'll clarify just in case somebody misunderstood it. What I said was we receive commissions be- from the insurer because we are basically reducing their overheads. Essentially, that's what I meant. But yeah. that doesn't mean that our obligation ends there. And that's when we, you can charge for, by being basically the risk, ad, uh, the advisor on that risk policy to say, look, you've increased your mortgage, therefore this has to be reviewed. Um, That's where the issue is around the claim time in that we do end up seeing a discrepancy um, in that, uh, in the insured amount not being adequate. The other thing that we do see um, is that the advisor may have uh, left some particular evidence or they may have not found um, they don't know how to structure the evidence properly. And so that may lead to a procedural fairness um, uh, uh, proceedings. And if you don't know what a procedural fairness is, I'll explain it to you. Just before the insurer declines a claim, they give the opportunity to the advisor and the client or whoever really is involved at that time to kind of fill in the gaps. So the insurer says, look, you've provided this on that date. You've done this on that date. Um, and we are a we are going to give you the benefit to let you know that we're thinking about declining the claim on the basis that this didn't fulfill the far, the current you know the the policy terms and conditions yeah. here and there, and so basically that allows you to kind of go in and say okay well what didn't I what didn't I do, and what what do I need to put in uh, to the insurer? Now that's assuming that the procedural fairness is simply a request for more information, but it's not. It is not that at all. It is preparation for litigation. Yeah. So this is where lawyers make their money, right? That's why I, I, I used to not like lawyers. Now I love lawyers because they taught me a lot of things, including how to respond to procedural fairness. Like, for example, when I respond to a procedural fairness letter, which I rarely do myself, I always use third-party lawyers to prepare to, to respond because they send me like three, four pages saying, this is what we're going to base our argument on. And I hire my lawyers and suddenly we get like a 50-page response going through every single part of the obligations under the life code, uh, time it's taken for the insurer to get to this point, how ludicrous the, the insurer's the insurance uh, uh, you know position when they mm. had to act, when they have to act in utmost good faith they get reminded of several cases where the, 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 they've done similar issues to other people and the yeah, courts yeah. have found them to be faulty. Yeah. And so suddenly you realize that, wait a minute, we're, we are dealing with insurance contracts and insurance contracts are legally are legal contracts yeah. with, with re, to, that are regulated by uh, either a government body or by the courts. So you have to understand how the government body regulates these contracts and you have to understand how the courts view these contracts and whether they are balanced or unbalanced and whether the insurer is acting with utmost good faith or they're basically taking the piss. So yeah. um, you, this is where you really start saying, okay, I am now an expert in claims handling because yeah. once you operate at that level, once you understand it at that level, everything else you feel comfortable with, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I guess kind of bringing this back to that, um, the advice piece, um, because at the end of the day, when we're giving advice, we need to think claims in mind. 
um, because that's the promise that I'm selling someone is, hey, if you ever need this, it's there for you. Yeah. Now, I never pay the claims. I'm never the one, you know, giving it a tick or a cross saying, yes, you will or no, you won't. But like, what are some of the like, f- you know, important features or some of the things that advisors should really be considering when making that product recommendation? Yeah. Um, that you may be not seeing as much as important. Uh, well, first of all, there's an overall, and I hope that um, the listeners, you know, there a lot of them are my friends, so I hope that they don't um, get a little bit upset with me. But I don't like the fact that a lot of people rely on products, uh, like, you know, software products to give them that analysis. And then um, the, the reason for that is because the software is basically extracting something from the PDS and they're comparing it to other products. But if you don't understand, for example, if the client says, look, I've got a history of neurological disorders in the family, uh, like what, like Parkinson's, like this, like that, okay. And then you don't understand the the legality, the medical legal definition of, for example, what is a neurological disorder in the policy? And then you, real, you say, okay, well, it's the unequivocal diagnosis of, um, whatever lesions in the brain and the spine. He said, wait a minute, and the spine? That's only 20% of people have that. So you get the medical literature out and you read it and you say, wait a minute, this is a bad policy because it says and, not or. And Mm -hmm. and that's where the legality is. That becomes like a medico-legal. They're using medical terminology and they're protecting themselves in a, and, and they're enforcing it through a legal contract. And yeah. so they're protecting either the client or themselves, the mm. insurer, I mean. So the, when an advisor uses, for example, X-Plan, it doesn't really do that uh, assessment because that's up to the advisor to ask the client about their medical histories, mm. maybe ask them to say, hey, look, why don't you go and get full medical? And maybe, sh- <laughs> and if you've got a real question about the uh, concern about Parkinson's or about MS or whatever, take this particular thing to your uh, GP and ask them what they think about the unequivocal diagnosis. Does it really cover you? Here's two or three policies. Ask the GP which one is best. That, uh, now you might say, well, we'll never put any policy in place if we did that. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> and, I'll right. to, and I'll say to you, yes, but it is a but it is not an insurance recommendation. It is a medico legal contract recommendation that you're entering into. Mm. And um, that's why I'm saying to you there's a practicality element to all of this. Now the other side of it is is that you need to have insurance put in place as soon as possible for a client. Like you can't mm. delay it either. So there is a practical element to this say, say look we're going to put this in place for you. Let's go over it. But these are the things that I need you to take care of. And maybe in the advice, you need to say, look, we haven't had the opportunity to address the your concerns around neurological disorders within the family. So here is the cooling off period. Here's the PDS. Take it to your GP and let's talk about it. If you're still concerned, then we can have a look at it in the next review. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, to to bring that back to a realistic scenario, uh-huh. um, as someone who is meeting clients uh, 10 times a week, I guess uh, the realistic scenario is know the contracts better yeah, and marry that pre-existing health history that we collect in a pre-assessment to that contract recommendation better than we're maybe seeing currently. Yeah, I think... Majority of the market. Look, I think I t- I wholeheartedly agree with you there. Um, there is also the um, 
the fact. So, so just to touch on that, to interrupt you, do you think insurance advice should only be provided by specialist insurance advisors, or do you think a generalist advisor can still work in insurance recommendation? Well, if you if you distinguish to me what a specialist does versus what a generalist does, I'll be able to answer that better. Well, I guess a specialist is only dealing with insurance advice. A generalist is wealth, insurance, superannuation, investment. So you're talking about somebody who understands the medico-legal terminology in in multiple insurance contracts and distinguishes between medical definitions and multiple contracts, and that's why they call themselves a specialist? Well, I guess what's the point you're trying to get out of that? Well... If you're calling yourself a specialist, you're holding yourself, you automatically are putting yourself in a situation where you are um, at a higher duty of care. So unless you really understand the ins and outs of multiple insurance contracts and understand not only the how to recommend them, because see, the thing is, advisors, including myself, were really good with quantifying risk financially. So mm-hmm. our job as a financial planner is not a is is not a legal medico legal insurance writer. Our job is to quantify risk and say mm-hmm. to the client, this is one way to reduce that risk in an insurable event. So if we are doing that really really well, then we can defend ourselves easily and we can call ourselves. Um, well, a specialist, but that means that the generalist doesn't know how to quantify risk, and that's that's absurd as well. Because a, a generalist should be able to, well, a, a holistic advisor, and yeah. a, and as somebody who focuses only on risk, they both should be able to say, "Here is your mortgage. Here is how much money you would lose if you lost your job due to an illness." Yeah, but but quantifying the financial risk isn't. That's just a needs analysis. Yeah, if we use it in our 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 jargon, that's a needs analysis. Yes, I think. We can assume that every advisor will have a philosophy right. on that quantifying that risk. Right. But to to know underwriting, to know processes is is much more deep in knowledge. Uh, underwriting is a manual that the insurer uses to discriminate against somebody under the Disability Discrimination Act. Exactly. So, so, so when we say <laughs> when we say somebody's a specialist, it means that they have to be. And not only um, they understand the medical legal nature of the matter, as well as the Disability Discrimination Act and the clauses in which an insurer can discriminate, apply loadings, etc. It's very rare do I see anybody saying to me, I understand, and I've been to the Human Rights Commission, and I have been to the Human Rights Commission, and I've won it, I, I, I guess a major insurer for discrimination, because they, the insurer didn't know how to use the, the Disability Discrimination Act to save themselves. So, yeah. it, well, so basically what I'm saying to you is, is that if there's somebody who focuses on an area of practice, like risk advice, and somebody who specializes in risk advice, Specializes means that they have to really go deep, deep, deep within the construct of the medico-legal contract, the APRA regime, the disability discrimination uh, procedures in relation to how to apply loadings and how to basically counter the claim of the insurer who says, your client has taken drugs 15 years ago in a party and therefore we're going to apply a loading of uh, 100%. Are you going to say, well, bugger off, that's actually discrimination under this act and under that act, and you're going to have to back yourself, and your dealer group has to back you as well, 
um, and, and, and basically defending the client's rights to obtain insurance at a fair value. Uh, I'm, I'm not taking away from people who, special, who do nothing other than insurance. I'm not taking away from that. What I'm saying is that if you're going to say, or if we want to aspire to be real specialists in this field and really, really add value, we're going to have to take it to the next level. Okay. You, yes, I hear that. But I guess my, my follow-on question for that is, can any advisor who doesn't aspire to that high bar provide insurance advice? Yes, because we're quant we, because we are uh, we are we deal we have a license we have a license from the government from ASIC to say that we can deal in life insurance contracts. Uh, our job, and including what um, what Morris Blackburn published that I published on my risk advisor about you know how to sue your financial planner, they weren't suing people because of the. Um, you know, they recommended uh, Tal versus Zurich versus whatever. Yeah. They're see seeing, they're saying that we're going to sue you if you have underinsured somebody. So if you got the needs analysis wrong, so our job is to get the needs analysis right, uh, first of all. And so that's a by by lawyers licking their, you know, lips about this. It means that we a lot of us do it wrong. That's what it means. So if we did the fundamentals absolutely right and we got that right and we are constantly reviewing the needs analysis every year at every opportunity that we get and we adjust the insurance amount, then we're doing basically 90% of the job as a specialist. Yeah, so I mean, to well, that's really interesting because to then bring it back into going, you know, you need to be selecting the product that has the best Parkinson definition because you've got that family history. Well, the likelihood of me, my obligation is to act in my client's best interest and to do what's best for them. Obviously, we want that. But um, in terms of risk management, I'm not going to get sued for picking, you know, X insurer over Y insurer because they've got a not as good a definition mm -hmm. on Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. um, all I need to think about is, Make sure the numbers make sense. This is exactly it. And and you know, if you went to court and and somebody said to you, you know, why did you recommend this versus that? And you say to them, look, well, I'm not an expert. I'm not a medical expert. So to me, it all looks the same, right? I'm not a legal expert, and to me, it all looks the same. But they said that you're a specialist. It means that you are telling people that this is my opinion. This is William John's yeah, yeah. opinion, by the way, right? Yeah. yeah. If you're saying to somebody, I'm a specialist, it means that you have knowledge that is more useful to the client about their particular issue than everybody else. And they've come to you because you are a specialist. And now you're telling us that you don't understand the difference between this definition and that definition because you're not a medical or a legal specialist. So why did you say you're a specialist if you're only going to do what others would do anyway, which is basically to quantify the risk? Because your your backup plan is to say to yourself, well, if I'm ever sued like this, I'll just say to them, look, my job as a financial planner is finance, is to quantify risk. And I get mm. an insurance contract. And if somebody asks me about the legalities and the medical stuff, I'll say, look, it's not my area of specialty. Okay, great. So you are a needs analysis specialist. Yes. Mm. And all financial planners needs analysis specialists? Yes, we are. Great. The <laughs> Yeah, I mean, interesting take. Um, so yeah, all the insurance specialists and just get rid of that term out of their LinkedIn profile. And um, No, no, and we'll no, no, do please don't. Please don't because, no, no, there's a focus. There is. So we've got to just understand how lawyers, what I'm saying to you is 
uh, my interest is to make sure that there is as many riskies out there. They stay in their jobs and they stay safe. What mm. I'm saying to you is, in order for you to stay safe, you've got to think about the environment you're in and that if TPD claims are going to go down because basically there is all sorts of regulation that's impacting the market. Like, for example, uh, the stapling superannuation uh, legislation yep. that's come through that's going to reduce the claims. So what a lawyer is going to do? They're going to go through their old books and they're going to see which, re which is a retail claim and they're going to go after the advisors. What yep. I'm saying to you is uh, think about your environment and think about how to protect yourself. Um, mm. I don't, if you if you want to call yourself a specialist, then y you have to think about the ramifications of what that means. Yeah, that's what yeah, I'm saying. Cool. Yeah, Makes and you sense. can edit this if you don't like it. By the way, so whoever is doing no, the I'm, editing is perfectly I'm, okay. I'm fine with it. I don't. I don't. Um, it's more the the timing of it all. That I think it's good. I think it's a good good conversation. Um, I get. I mean, I guess my concern with this is is it instills fear in advisors and I don't think that's necessarily healthy because statistically speaking, we are very rarely get sued. Complaints are very rarely in the advisors, like go towards advisors. And so I guess my concern with this conversation is less so about myself or conversation around specialists or not is, is I guess my fear is the market for, from advisors are moving away from giving insurance advice. Yeah. My business will grow because of it. So selfishly, it's good. But I don't think it's good for Australians to not be able to access good quality insurance advice. Yeah. And so, and I think these conversations more instill fear in the advice market than when reality says statistically you're not going to get sued. I, so don't freak I, out about I agree. it. Give advice to a 1,000 people and you'll get sued 0.1% of those 1,000 people. And look, I hope that you're recording this particular. Uh, it's all recorded. Because it's, yeah. this is good. Um, the issue that we've had in the past, and um, you know, this is, again, my personal view, how can we add value to people who do it? How can we attract more people to do it? Um, mm. And one of the questions I ask myself is that do we need to, uh, when we talk about risk advice, do we simply stop at the quantification of risk or do we go deeper into the regulatory environment and how to how an ad advisor can be empowered to understand the uh, disability discrimination uh, exemptions for life insurers to discriminate against somebody with with who's taken drugs 15 years ago um, should we should we how deep do we go in the education process for advisors because there's a lack in that right now yeah, but there's there is a there's also a fairly buoyant market where we've got many insurers. So not many insurers will decline or load based on drug use fifteen years ago. This, it's pretty rare. This well, this is that's not the point. The 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 point is yes, the advisor can 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 go shop around. Yeah, I guess I guess yeah. Well, that's my point. Is is like this, do we need to be so deep in the legislation understanding anti-discrimination when really we can just shop around? And if everyone in the market says no, then we can like stomp our feet and say, hey, this is anti-discrimination. Because if, if the insurers are the ones taking the risk, at the end of the day, they're allowed to discriminate, 
whether it is whether that particular case is allowed to happen or not if all insurers say no then me as an advisor what is my obligation my obligation isn't to go to the anti-discrimination um and get a determination for my individual client to get them an insurance contract i don't think so no but our obligation is to allow the client to understand their rights under the legislation when we are organizing or handling a claim for them like organizing an insurance contract for them yeah. So part of that is when an insurer is allowed to discriminate against you uh, based on a pre-existing condition, for example, um, yeah. or pre-existing uh, lifestyle uh, thing, or because you've engaged in this activity or that activity. So it's our job to um, uh, work on the client side and, and advocate for the client where possible. You're asking me how do we become specialists or how do we, or, or what, in my view, is a specialist. In my view, a specialist is somebody who possesses more knowledge um, in areas that makes them unique. That's right. And part of that is, well, what, how, how education is what makes people unique. And how do we get that education in the hands of specialist risk advisors as soon as possible so that they are specialists or they feel like... I mean, I mean experience does. As well, like I mean, we we put in place something like two hundred plus applications in September alone. So we pre-assess almost every single one of our clients. So we see pre-assessments go out every day and come back every day. So I would say the experience in that understanding, you know, if I've got a client whose parents are. Know, 55 when they had cancer, I'm not going to X, Y, and Z. I'm going to A, B, and C. Mm. Where I, I guess my argument is a generalist would spend a lot more time, money, and effort understanding that. They can find that answer, but just like any generalist can find a, an answer that a specialist I think you're right. I, I, think, I think there's, a, a, there's a certainly a, um, a truth in what you're saying. The more you do something, the more exposed you will be to it and you'll understand it deeper. There's no mm. dispute about the experience part of it. Nobody's saying to you that the experience is worth nothing. I'm saying to you, you know, is that how do you, if you, look, I mean, I mean we are probably the, at a cusp of change uh, in terms of lawyers have specializations um, and education relating to that specialization. Um, uh, medical practitioners do. Almost all professionals, have, when they call themselves specialized, uh, they they have to demonstrate a particular knowledge competency, not just experience competency. And the mm. and the question that I think to myself is that you know we don't need any more education because we're already being pushed left, right, and center. Is how do we get this education? And part of why I'm talking to you today is to share what I know. And sharing what mm. I know is part of being uh, increasing the awareness out there. Now, some people can ignore me. Some people can say, hey, I took out a couple of things out of half an hour or one hour we've been talking. Um, I've taken one or two things out of it, and that was valuable. Yeah. I mean, we're in our first hour of a three-and-a-half-hour session, so um, <laughs> strap yourself in. Um. <laughs> but you know what I mean. So, But this is, not a, this is not a uniform, this is not an agreed pathway of education that can basically mm. result in a specialization. The other thing is that we've relied far too long on product providers to provide us with education in uh, terms of CPD points, in terms of seminars, and 
providers are not going to teach you on how to uh, effectively uh, litigate. You know, for example, in a, what happens if a client gets declined? Mm. Um, they're going to teach you their processes and, and what they think is the right thing to do for with a bias. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think we can all agree there are many things that um, need adjustments um, in the way in the way we do things. Um, and yeah, I guess the the discussion around a specialist and you know, and all a lot of these things that we touched on already, and like you know, discussing needs analysis, we're going to do an episode on that. Discussing like specialization versus generalist, we're we're going to have a have a discussion around that. And the needs analysis is not like it used to be. Like take, for example, the NDIS um, equation now that that basically the government has said, look, well, effectively, if, if you're disabled and you're under 65, absent from a compensation scheme that you might be relying on, like motor accident and all that sort of stuff, the government will effectively underwrite the, the care. Um, where is that in the needs analysis? Now, some people... And and I would love to engage in a, in a, in a debate on this um, mm. because and, yeah we we are going to have that yeah because some people say look you can't rely on the NDIS because people are and I'm one of those people by the way that says you can't fully rely on the NDIS because I most of my clients on the financial planning side are on the NDIS and I'm engaged in as an expert uh, in the disability space to get yep. them registered and then to advocate and then to go to AAT and all that sort of stuff um, the so we can't rely on that. But then we can't totally take it out from the uh, equation when it comes to the risk analysis. Uh, but what do you do? Well, exactly. Well, yeah, what do you do? Do you, do you rely on it and then the government change their mind on, on so, NDIS and then, you know, then you've got to be forced to review because if, if you use that needs analysis with 500 clients and then the NDIS changes, well, you then, as you said, those clients are now left underinsured. Correct. And so what do you do? And so these are really healthy debates um, and they need a directive not only from uh, dealer groups, but they need a directive from regulators, maybe associations after engaging with regulators to say, look, here is our position, our industry position. So if the advisor does something, they're not going to have a law firm saying, aha, there's a gap in the insurance and therefore we're going to sue you. Um, yeah. There is a directive, and that's the education I'm talking about. That's the special. That's when we become specialists in mm. the area, um, and we need to always review the uh, uh, the risk uh, for a client. Always be reviewing, because then when it comes to the claims time, I'm not going to be feeling awkward about a client that I had recently, for example, who's had this advisor since 2009, the same policy. $300,000, it's now worth $500,000, and the guy is basically $700,000 in debt. And, mm. and he is only 40, 41 with a baby. And I'm, gonna yeah. say, I'm saying to him, actually, you have to sell your home. And he's saying to me, what are you going to do about what's my right? And guess what I have to say to him? My, your rights are the following. Take action against this person, take action against that person. There is negligence here, there is negligence there. Um, that's not fun. That's not fun for mm. anybody. Um, and uh, thankfully, see, I, I, I would be even compromised to do that. And if, if that, luckily the advisor wasn't the referring person in this case, because I wouldn't be able to do the claim otherwise uh, if, I, mm. if I took a position beside the advisor. But now we have also an obligation, AFSL, to, AFSL, to dobbin each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, look, it's, it's it, all I can say to you is review those clients. Like, 
uh, you have to have a robust review process yeah. in order for yeah. you to be safer at a claim time at claims time. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's where we're going to have a discussion about commissions versus fee-for-service and, and, you know, the yep. pros and cons of each. But I think that's where discussing about commissions, we chatted on earlier, I think commissions are only an issue with all, um, where there's a lack of service. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's... Yeah, an important discussion. We are going to start to wrap this up um, yep. because, as I said, we could talk for three and a half hours. Um, but I'm going to finish off with a few questions. When do you get a chance to do your emails? Oh, um, it feels like all I do these days is emails and not enough advice. That's what it feels like rather than the other way around. And it's probably because I'm disorganized. We do have a team, like a complete team on the claim side. We've got, you know, many, many... Uh, well, now I've hired five in the last month just to deal yeah. on the um, claim side. So we have like a ticketing system like an IT company would have. So an yeah, email yeah. gets in there, generates a ticket. Um, it has to be closed. We have like automatic um, pre-approved sentences to say, you know, you're under stress. What's, what's, the, what's the program you use? We use Zoho Desk for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, and it, it and you can create like knowledge articles and all that sort of stuff. So if a client yeah. has a particular question that has been yeah, asked they, by a thousand other clients, it. you can you can basically copy and paste that in there, and, and the clients will have the answer. Um, so yeah, so I basically have people answering emails um, as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Um. And what's one interesting hobby you have? I play piano. Okay. Not too, not horrible, but like not great. Oh, when like, when someone says they play a, an instrument, okay, you can tell they're just like a, one level below a maestro. So. No, well, I promise you, I am I am self taught. Um, I I play off note a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, my audience is my mother. Usually, my wife can't even take that. Yeah. So, and you know what mothers are like. Even if you're basically playing a rectangle, they'll yeah, tell you how fantastic it. you are. So. <laughs> yeah. We um we just moved into a new house and my wife wants to get a um a piano. Neither of us can play. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I just don't want it sitting there for, for two years and never being played. So yeah. um I'll I'll keep you updated to see if we get one and, and I'll do some lessons with you. My my favorite song is I Did It My Way by Frank Sinatra. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, um, before we finish up, how do people get in contact with you? Yeah. So they can always reach out to me online. You know, I'm always around. Um, message me if you've got any questions. I'm almost always happy to help. Um, if I if I'm available, uh, give me a call on my mobile if you've got it. If you haven't got it, then give me one. Give me a call on one three hundred twelve forty four ninety nine. If you have technical questions, you wanna flash out then do it if you've got questions about advice that requires technical know-how then call usually i'm just there for you guys so if i can help i'll help like you all do each other you know yeah yeah awesome thanks william appreciate your time thanks phil Thanks for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think someone else will get value out of it, I'd love it if you could forward it on to them. And as always, we can continue the conversation in the My Risk Advisor Facebook group. All you need to do, open up Facebook and search My Risk Advisor and I'll see you in there.